Welcome back to What Do You Want to Watch, the show hosted by myself, Nathan English, and David Dirks. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about the back half of the cinema experience that is sweeping the entire country and really the entire planet, um, say for a few areas. And that is Oppenheimer, the part hmm. two of the Barbenheimer double bill, which actually is a little weird in the name because I think the way that most people did it was they saw Oppenheimer first. I did. Do yeah. I did it the proper way, the way God um, intended, which was oh. seeing Barbie first. Interesting. Um, if God didn't want you to see Barbie first, why does Barbenheimer flow so well? Riddle me that, Batman. Well, I think Oppen Barb sounds Oppen B sounds much better than Barbenheimer. No, you, no, you <laughs> no, don't. No, you don't. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna be talking about Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's epic biopic that is a front runner for Best Picture? Question mark? Question mark? We'll talk about that. So we'll talk saying. about, we'll so talk about performances we'll talk about everything to do with this three-hour epic film that david and i have both seen twice in theaters all that's coming up thanks all right david first um i just want to say congratulations you did it you made it all the way to july and you were able to see your favorite filmmaker release possibly his most important and greatest work. Uh, just give me give me just a general reaction, how you felt walking out of the theater first time after having viewed Oppenheimer. Um, while I was ecstatic, I think you said that I was had a, a, a 5,000 yard stare. Is that what you said? When I was just contemplating the movie, we were just standing yeah. in a circle wondering what, what we just witnessed. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, honestly, like this, I don't know if it's cheesy and I don't even know if it's because of its quality, but just of the message that it sent, but I was speechless. Mm-hmm. Like maybe probably because the quality, you know, but also I mean, honestly that the message that the movie sent, I think we were all just kind of like, Wow. Like we knew that, you know, what the movie would be about and we probably assumed it'd be pretty heavy, but I don't know if we anticipated it like affecting us the way it did, you know, like Mm -hmm. in the the way that he told that story. I think we were all a little like caught off guard of like, dang. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, on on, on rewatch, enjoyed it even more. Um, And we'll kind of get into that why and, and stuff like that. But yeah, man, I was very ecstatic. Um, maybe the first time this year, just saying this without really thinking that I've had insanely high expectations and like everything was met. Like I, I, I had insanely high expectations and I was like, I didn't have any issues with that. You know, like there were some really good movies this year that I didn't have as high expectations on that maybe did fine. But for this one, I was like, I hope this doesn't disappoint because I have never expected more in a movie. And to me it delivered. So yeah, yeah, I'm feeling good. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I just, I think this is like, honestly, this is kind of cool for you, even just to watch. Like, you're such a, I I mean, people that listen to this podcast know, but you're such a big Nolan guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot riding on this for you. Like, genuinely, like, personally, there was a lot. Because if this movie sucks, it would have been tough. Like, for you to come back from that, 
And like, personally, I think that would have just probably ruined your life for the next couple of weeks. You would have just been like (laughs) thinking about how disappointing it would have been. So the fact that he like came through and not only I think delivered, but really even like, even to his most fervent critics kind of like, proved himself um Mm. and not that that was the goal or even something that nolan had to do because he he was obviously one of the most respected filmmakers uh on the planet before the release of this movie but like uh even people that were very critical of his films in the past um have just heaped praise upon oppenheimer Mm -hmm. uh just an incredibly rare feat in cinema, something we haven't seen in a while and we'll probably never see again. I was trying to think of like, uh, make a comparison um, to any other films. The only thing that I can think of that this movie is close to is like Titanic, a movie in which you, that is based on a true story that you also know the ending of before it starts. And Mm. it's three hours long and yet your attention is wrapped the entire time. Mm. and it's going to be unbelievably well-received. This movie is going to do just... It's already doing ridiculous business at the box office. Um, Award season, it's going to just mop up almost Mm. everything. Um, uh, The budget was $100 million. It has made um, almost $200 million in the U.S. It's made over $400 million worldwide. It's going to go on to be among the more profitable uh, films since the pandemic. Now it's not going to reach Nolan's top, but you got to think this is a rated R biopic. These movies are not supposed to make money. It's at three all. hours They're, long. Yeah. This is the kind of movie that we say that they don't make anymore. Um, mm-hmm. They don't make these biopics for wide theater release. This is something that goes on Hulu. This is something that drops to Amazon Prime and you don't even hear yeah. about. And there's one interesting actor in it. And you're like, oh, I might check that out. But then you see it and you're like, nah, I'm not really interested. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer was an event. Um, yeah. And without Barbie, um, we talked about this on the Barbie podcast too. Without Barbie, I don't think it's as big a success, but I still think it would be a huge success. I think Barbie mm-hmm. is lifting it as well as Oppenheimer is lifting Barbie. I think they're just mm-hmm. helping each other out at the box office. But who would have thought that it would have gone that way? At first, we're talking like, man, it's going to hurt each other, but has it I'm helped each you, other? You we're, know, we're gonna we're going to be talking about this like with our kids. The way that mm-hmm. um, like our parents talk about some movies that came out, like my my parents i've heard them discuss like what a big deal it was when the lord of the rings movies came out when i was so little and don't remember or or even like a movie like titanic that everybody saw in the theaters or, or my Jaws. mom oddly remembers like watching return of the jedi in theaters because it was such a big deal even though she'd never seen any of the other star wars movies before that point so she was just super confused yeah um but like that's what this is gonna be like we're gonna be telling people for decades about like do you yeah. remember the the opening weekend for Barbie and Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I'm so happy. Yeah. Between both movies, Barbenheimer gross, uh, it's made $1.23 billion. Let's go. And the movies have been out for two weeks and five days. It's That's crazy. It. It's crazy. And like you and I both have seen Oppenheimer twice. I'm probably going to go watch Barbie again before it comes out of theaters. Although I think Barbie Oppenheimer is definitely getting help from the repeat business in terms of like, okay, I really like that, but I definitely want to watch it again because mm-hmm. it's not going to be the same on my TV. And not this doesn't mean that Barbie is a lesser movie. I actually 
personally, I think I enjoy Barbie more. But mm-hmm. Barbie is a movie that it's not going to suffer, I, I think, on TV as much. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a film that relies on, you know, sound and visuals as much as Oppenheimer yeah. does. And so I think that Oppenheimer is, is it's getting good repeat business. Barbie is too, yeah. but I think Oppenheimer is going to be in theaters for a while because an IMAX, I, like what is coming out that's going to need to take those IMAX screens, you know? Like, is the Meg yeah. 2 playing in IMAX? I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> so, yeah. And well, so yeah, it's crazy. Players, like, so. um, I think Barbie has had a more, you know, a, a steeper incline, and we'll find it, we'll, we'll see it kind of plateau. But I think Oppenheimer is going to have more of like a slow, steady build. And mm-hmm. Oppenheimer probably won't catch Barbie. Yeah, Barbie's at mm-hmm. $811 million, and it probably is going to cross a billion. Yeah. Um, and Bar- Oppen- Barbenheimer, Oppenheimer, Probably what seven hundred million, maybe it might settle around there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not even that much. Um, so that's not to say that Oppenheimer is going to catch up with Barbie, but I do think there's going to be more of a steady increase with Oppenheimer, whereas everyone's watching Barbie, and then you know everyone's kind of done. So, but mm-hmm. man, it's like, will both of these hit two? Like combined, well, are we going to hit two billion with this, or is, yeah. is one billion yep. the threshold? I think so. Okay. Uh, there's projections right now, and obviously projections are you know it's it's like polls right it can be inaccurate and stuff you never know but there's projections that show barbie is going to like pass super mario bros to become the most profitable movie um wow of this year which is insane for a live action movie based on barbie um that is just also like we talked about it in the barbie episode this is a politically charged movie this is a movie that has something to say this isn't just like an empty comedy which comedies again also don't make money anymore mm-hmm. like studio comedies no hard feelings did really good business and it, i think it made like 80 million dollars which was mm-hmm. enough to like double its budget made decent money for the studio and everything and it was a good investment for them but that's like a huge win now when you get a comedy to make that much money so the fact that yeah yeah barbie is doing what it's doing i think is just unbelievable um and oppenheimer is the same thing i mean we've already talked about it. it's a three-hour biopic that's about a subject matter you know, it's about one man who's very controversial, um, but also it's like not, it's not action. It's not action packed. Like it is, <laughs> but it's not like a, there's no shootouts in this movie, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of this movie, a surprising amount, even for a Nolan film is dialogue. It's walk and talks. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, all that other stuff. And so I, I think it's just amazing what these, I'm just so happy. Like, I'm just so happy for it. It's good to be a fan of movies right now. Genuinely. Like it's just it's like whenever in football, whenever you get like a really good like Super Bowl. That's what this feels Mm. like. Like it's just it's great for everybody. So before we kind of dive into this movie, talking about just movies in general, if we're gonna assume that Barbie, you know, for the sake of my argument, Barbie's going to hit more than $1.29 million. That puts them in the top 20 highest grossing movies of all time. Mm-hmm. So it needs $400 million, which honestly doesn't seem like a, mu- a lot when you think about that. Hmm. That would put five movies made after COVID in the top 20 highest grossing movies of all time. That hmm. feels like that's a win for yeah. just movies Absolutely. and people who love movies. Because I, mm-hmm. I, I, that feels rare. I'm seeing a lot of 90s. I'm seeing... You know, a couple 2015, 12, but five movies in the last three years cracked the top 20. It feels very impressive to me. And I think this is also important. And we talked about 
we talked about this as well on the Barbie pod, but like this is a movie for women. Barbie is. And so this just shot like, I don't know why, which Titanic is kind of as well. It's not like it's none of what I'm saying is means that like men can't enjoy these films or won't, won't like Mm -hmm. them or, or, and like that Greta's like, this isn't for you. Cause it's, it is like it's a movie for everybody, but it's marketed specifically towards women, which is what happened with Titanic. And both of them made ridiculous amounts of money. And I don't know why studios haven't taken the lesson that like, how, to, how about you spend time on good stories, market them towards women, and then maybe you'll see returns. Mm. It's 50% of the population that just gets ignored a lot of the time. And I think maybe that'll be a lesson, especially with the success of Barbie, that I there's some bad lessons they can take away. One of them is that the, Mattel CEO said they want to create like a Mattel universe with like Barbie in it. And I'm no, that's not the lesson you take away from this. Mm -hmm. The lesson you take away from this is that smart comedies marketed towards women can make a lot of money. Marco Robbie and Ryan Gosling are definitely good enough to carry a film to the stratosphere and give Greta Gerwig whatever she wants and give her creative control and let her go. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing you can learn from Oppenheimer because people were kind of ragging on Nolan after Tenet because a lot of people didn't understand. Here's what Christopher Nolan can do. He can take a subject matter that most people would find a boring History Channel documentary and he can turn it into one of the most exciting films of the year. That's yeah. He has that power. Yeah. So. Well, it's really interesting. And I, this isn't my thought. I heard this on another podcast. But it's almost like – no one like split his movies in half with the last two that he's made where like Tenet was very action packed, action heavy. And mm-hmm. if you heard the dialogue, great. If you didn't, I mean, it's not the point of the movie. And then he, this next one he makes is very just dialogue and script heavy. It's just very interesting how like he could have kept making the interstellars and inception where it's like action and explanation, prestige, action, explanation, but it's interesting. He's like taking different routes and he's like seeing what he can do. Maybe, maybe he's like proven himself to other people or maybe he's like, I'm going to try this. Let's see. Like I've done everything. Let's not, why not try this? So it's just very interesting to see kind of how he's going in this, you know, directing process. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, is there any, I mean, can, can he do anything? I feel like at this point with this heavy three hour script, like, I don't know if, I think he could just do do about anything he wanted to do. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think I think he's always had that capability. I I think oftentimes people associate Nolan with just like everything Dark Knight and Post, like mm-hmm. and just forget about the prestige and memento. Like two just astounding films that have such unique premises and are just so entertaining. Yeah. And I think Nolan has some critiques and they're not necessarily solved through this movie. If you have an issue with the way that he particularly writes female characters, I think he does a better job in this movie, but I think you could still take issue with that. I think no one couldn't direct Barbie, but pretty much any other, anything else. Yeah. Like I, I genuinely, yeah. And I, I think that he's just, he makes event films. He does and not. He's, he's one of the few people that makes non IP event films. Like non non superhero non franchise entertainment event films, and yeah, he's also done franchise stuff. I mean, obviously Batman, right? The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. which is still my personal, my, probably top or 
it's still top three Nolan for me. And I don't think anything will ever move it off that list. I'm sure that's probably the same for you as well. Yep. Um, he has that, but he also just like, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to make my own movie. I'm going to write this. I'm going to direct it. It's going to cost a lot of money. I'm going to get big stars to be in it and it's going to be mine. And if you don't like that, like that, but it's going to be an event. It's going to look beautiful and the effects are going to be great. And it's going to be a lot of sound. So yeah, at this point, if you're not, if, if you don't like Nolan, if you're like, I'm out on Nolan after Oppenheimer, there's nothing he can do to bring you in. Yeah. He's so. done the war epic. He's done the superhero. He's done the heavy action. He's done the dialogue. Like He's done deep sci-fi. He's done high more. concept action. Yeah, he's done everything. So, yeah. I mean, at this point, yeah. It's just, I, I like the way this pairs with Dunkirk as well. I think that's very interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So. Nathan, this movie has made 407, or $419 million, like you said. Um, right now, that is his sixth highest grossing movie. That's two and a half weeks in. It's behind Dunkirk, Interstellar, Inception, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises. Do you? Where do you think that ends up settling? Do you think that or, tops Batman? Those made one point oh six and one point eight billion dollars. It may not get no, there, but no. Inception's coming in at eight hundred thirty six million and third. You think there, you think it'll get to third? I think it. I think it has a chance of getting there. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't see it crossing a billion. I think that it's going to run out of, at a certain point because while we the repeat viewing thing is very important, it is a three hour movie. And yeah, it's a yeah. three-hour movie you want to see on premium screens. And at a certain point, that's going to play against it a little bit on the back end, I think. This isn't yeah. a movie that people are going to go casually see. Um, mm-hmm. But I could be wrong because Avatar 2 also had huge, like, huge business later on. So yeah. it's possible that I'm incorrect about that, which remember how Avatar 2 was, like, the biggest movie on the planet? All the memes about, like... Who gives a crap about Avatar? And then Avatar Two made like two point nine billion dollars or something yeah. like that. Like it's yeah, it's absolutely. What's insane. funny is I, even we were like, I mean, yeah, but it was like ten years ago. Is this really going to do like as much as we people said it will? And then yeah, two point five whatever billion dollars. Like I, yeah, it I, will. It will. I was one of those people that saw it twice in theaters, and mm-hmm. so yeah. Um, I don't. I think it. I don't think it reaches a billion, but I think it gets close. Either way, it's a. It's an, a smash success. And I saw that Warner Brothers is already trying to like get him back. But I wonder Guys. if he's gonna. If I were him, I would stick with Universal. Like honestly. Well, yeah. They were they mad at him, and then they're like, okay, now he's making Oppenheimer. They're like, okay, no, come back. It's okay. And then they're like, no, we have Barbie. Actually, we don't need you. And now it's going well, and they want him. It's like, okay, guys, you gotta, you gotta pick a side here. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I, I think he should stick with Universal. Anyway, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about the actual movie itself. Let's do some spoiler-free conversations a little bit first uh, before we we get into it. So if you haven't seen this film, the first ten-ish minutes of this conversation right here are going to be spoiler-free, and then we'll give you a warning before you want to turn off the pod when we start talking about specific plot points. So Oppenheimer is obviously based on the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, the famous physicist who is often credited as the father of the atomic bomb, um, which was created through the Manhattan Project during World War II and was eventually dropped. Two two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, And this is about the development of the bomb through Oppenheimer and then a little bit of the aftermath of what he dealt with after the bombs were dropped. This is based largely on the biography American Prometheus, 
Um, and from what I, I have not read this biography, but from what it seems, Nolan took out wholesale chapters and everything and adapted it to the screen. Uh, yeah. The person who wrote the biography, calling it one of the most faithful historic adaptations of all time, which is very possible. Um, but also, I, I mean, that guy's also going to say that because he's promoting himself as well by doing that. But yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. It's it's a three hour movie about Oppenheimer, how he becomes a famous scientist, physicist, and then um, develops from that into the father of the atomic bomb, and then how he has to deal with that. Stars Killian Murphy as. Oppenheimer, who's just unbelievable. I like the the task that he has in this movie is so difficult. Um, I think emotionally yeah. just has to deal with. He's a fantastic. Also, great accent work from him, which is something people not a lot of people are mentioning. But like, mm. Killian Murphy's Irish, um, and so well, yeah. this is not. He's Oppenheimer's is, not. So it's impressive. Is, does he have the lead actor locked up? Yeah. Or can we? I don't, okay. I, yeah. That's he's gonna win best actor. I don't see a way he doesn't. Like, I don't I, know if there's any way somebody else comes over the top and takes that from him, unless like Joaquin and Napoleon is unbelievable. But I, mm-hmm. I for me, I don't see anything beating this. This is one of my favorite leading performances of the last decade, probably mm-hmm. easily. So Emily Blunt is in this film as his wife, Kitty Oppenheimer. Uh, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Alden Ehrenreich, Jason Clark, Florence Pugh, Tony Goldwyn, Josh Hartnett, Kenneth Branagh. Like the it's every, every everybody. Jason Clark, who had a actually a very difficult job and a, did a really good job. I thought yeah, it's such a smarmy piece of crap in this film. Honestly, Vinny, Vinny Safdie. Yeah. He, he's very good at that. Vinny Safdie's in this. Um, did you say Josh Peck? Because I think it's important we uh, mention yeah, him. Josh Peck, uh, Roderick <laughs> from Diary of a Wimpy Kid is in this movie. Come on. So yeah, there's a lot of like even if you don't know the name of the actor, which I'm saying a David phrase. Even if you don't know the name of the actor, you know their face. Um, a lot Come of on. those guys in this um so there's that uh but it's i don't know this movie is great it's just it's a lot david what what would you like to say spoiler free wise about this film oh um i I, i've been telling people around me this but this is absolutely a movie you have to see on the big screen um not only just visually the sound editing the the uh the score um even seeing killian on the big screen like there's just so much you have you have to experience this um in a movie theater because while it'll be very very good at home it just will not be the same um Mm -hmm. but yeah man it really really good honestly i processing and, and after a second time watching it i i genuinely don't think there was a bad performance i think every person that was on the screen um did exceptional. I, this I said this in part of my review of like one. I don't know what's more impressive, and one of them was like that. Chris Nolan brought like eleven to twelve actors their best p- performance of their careers, you know, and not only like Killian and some of these main people, but um, you know, you have a guy like Jason Clark, you know, or Casey Affleck was was yeah, evil was in like two and scenes, very good and was yeah. very effective, yeah, 
Josh Hartnett, who knew that he still had a career and did a very good job. That probably just, you know, refueled his acting. Yeah, like just a, he's great. a lot of just stellar performances. And um, yeah, man, this thing's visually everything you could ask for and more. Um, I, I said this in my review as well. Like, I, I just don't think there's a, a director on this planet that could have made Oppenheimer as good as Nolan made it. Just the way he incorporates... I, it's just it's blows me away just the, the i don't want to spoil it i'm trying not to spoil it i just want to talk about it you know but uh I'll, I'll stop there i just don't know if there's a director that can do what nolan just did and um yeah he's found his thing nolan has found what he enjoys and he's found you know what he's good at and it's it's it, the visuals the sound editing the score he tagged with that and um he didn't have hans this time i think there might have been like a falling out, maybe when he Hans chose Dune over Tenet, or maybe no, he I just chose. I don't think so. I think that Hans was working on Dune two. Okay, and so I don't think that he was available because um, he hasn't had he hasn't had him in his last two. But I, from what I, I don't think there's like a falling out or anything. Okay, but I mean that that's not an issue scores, for uh, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, not an issue for Nolan because now the last two. I even thought Tenet. I thought he did insane in that, and but this was even better. Uh, Ludwig, very, yeah. very good job. And uh, I was listening to it on the way home, and I was just like, man, this is – I'm elevating right now out of my seat listening to this soundtrack. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk more about it, you know, spoiler yeah. conversation. But, man, I just really highly suggest watching this. And um, there's no CGI, too. Like, this is real. You're, what you're watching is is real, um, which is just really impressive. It. The, eye, the human eye can always tell, like, yes, this is really impressive CGI, but I feel like you can always tell, like, yeah, but that's that's not real. But, mm-hmm. man, it, there's none of that here because, you know, this shot in New Mexico and, and throwing things up for real and, and doing this on site, and that's just – it's really impressive. So, yes, like you said at the beginning, I'm just – I'm proud, and I'm happy that it, you know, my excitement didn't get dwindled at a poor movie because that just wasn't the case yeah yeah like i said uh earlier this movie had a lot more talking in it than i expected which is three-hour movie so i guess that maybe is my fault but this is much more of like a walk and talk fast-paced style i think this movie has some of the best editing i've ever seen uh Mm -hmm. it's a difficult task to try and weave um it's doing classic nolan he's jumping back and forth in time um, mm-hmm. But trying to weave these these stories in a way that makes sense, the timelines to make sense with each other, but they do. There wasn't a point where I was ever really confused about what point in time we were at, where we were going, and that's all credit to the editing. Also, just the editing on like, you know, getting facial reactions for things that are happening. Um, camera placement's super important in this film. It's really great, and it all culminates. And this isn't really a spoiler. It's the Trinity test. Right, mm-hmm. which is the name for the first ever test of the atomic bomb in the desert in New Mexico. And it is one of the most masterful tension builds I've ever seen. It's mm. it's unbelievable what Nolan is able to accomplish, cutting back and forth between each different character, using countdown clocks effectively, building the music and the score, and um just it's it's just beautiful, genuinely. Yeah. Um for me, it's, uh the last after the Trinity test, which is not the end of the film, th- that part falters a little. It's not as good. It's not bad. 
but I don't think it reaches the heights uh, that the first two acts have. That kind of third act is a little eh for me in terms of, of where it is compared to the other two. But still, like, um, it's just it's just Nolan doing great work. And I just mm. want to shout out a couple of of performances um, before we like move any any further into the conversation. The first one is I thought Matt Damon, who like all the buzz is going to Robert Downey Jr., which fair. Like it should be. Um, but I thought Matt Damon was incredible in this film. Mm. And it's yeah. like a very important figure and like representing the military, um, but like kind of the other side of the Manhattan Project and like what what not just the scientist perspective, um, but he's also just Matt Damon, like is one of our great actors. Mm-hmm. And he's just in this. Uh, another one, David Krummeltz, who um, it plays uh, Isidore Rabi, who is like Oppenheimer's best friend, mm. essentially, um, kind of. And he's fantastic in every scene that he's Dude in. was in his bag. Well. It's like the warmth that he gives off, like towards Oppenheimer. It's a very, it, I think one thing Nolan has struggled with for me is like the friendships even in some of his movies mm-hmm. haven't been believable um, at certain points. This was mm-hmm. a very believable friendship, like a super warm friendship. He's like one of those character traits is he just reminds Oppenheimer to eat, um, which is something I had to do for David sometimes. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just love but those two performances yeah. specifically. That train and then, scene just yeah. felt like so natural. And that was the first time they'd met. And I just like, like yeah, they're gonna be best friends. Like it just yeah. feel it just felt natural. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we've gone so long in the podcast. My gal Florence Pugh is in four scenes, <laughs> and she's throwing a hundred miles an hour every time. Um, she's great. I love her. I love her so much. Uh, yeah. What did you think of that role for her? It felt different than what movies she's been in, you know, previously and and usually. But what did you think of that? I I thought it was. Um, you know, it was it was it wasn't enough Florence Pugh for me, because there never is. I I, th- I like that she did it though. Yeah, I like that it was a different a different character choice for her. She plays Jean Tatlock in this film, which is Oppenheimer's girlfriend, um, slash later becomes his mistress um, whenever he is married, um, and is. I don't know. Is uh, it's it's a complicated role because it's clear that uh, Jean had a lot of personal demons in her real life, um, and so Florence Pugh has has no difficulty portraying strong emotions. Um, but at least from the films that I've seen her in, this is the most like over the top emotions she had to deal with. But she's not doing like classic woman cries and screams and flips out and throws things and gets mad, like yeah. sh- like the just intense sadness that she has present at all times is just it's great and then she has yeah. some fantastic line readings as well and just like mm-hmm. really good chemistry with killian um also yeah. on their press tour like they get along really well which is killian's mm-hmm. normally like a very stoic person so i uh, but i found that interesting but yeah i gotta mention yeah. i gotta mention florence so yeah well i mean i guess you know i, I asked that in, in the role she had i guess there's really only two main female characters in this movie and you know yeah, Florence just, as you mentioned and then Emily Blunt um so both did a very very good job I thought mm-hmm. and to the criticism which I understand um about you know Nolan and not telling 
female focused stories, um, which I think that he may have sidelined Kitty a little bit in this film. But I think some people have been a little unfair by attacking Nolan and saying like, where's all the lines for women in this movie? And she's like, I'm sorry, but in the 1940s, men were idiots and didn't think women could contribute in many aspects, which they obviously could have. So, I mean, yeah. he's portraying that accurately. Um, I, w- I actually think I would have liked a little bit more Kitty. I think that um, we kind of didn't see enough of their relationship for me, honestly, <laughs> with the way that it gets built up in the end where Oppenheimer is like, we're adults. Kitty and I have been through wars together. Like, we know mm-hmm. everything. And I would have liked to see a couple more scenes. Obviously, I'm asking them to add to a three-hour movie, but um, yeah. I think that would have maybe helped a little bit. But I don't know. No, I agree because then, kind of, you know, at that certain part in the movie where you do finally get to see her, it's like, well, this is sick. You know, where's this been? You know, so I do yeah. understand. Like, could have used it more of that, but again, it's like, well, what, what do you cut? Because you can't just keep adding to a, a long yeah. movie. So it's tough. No, no spoilers for what actually happens in the scene, but there's clearly like, oh, uh, Emily Blunt is amazing and let's let her cook for uh, one scene, mm. please, so we can just remind everybody how great she is. And uh, it's fantastic. Um, Low key, though, she had, I think she had two scenes where she factly yeah. out. And the second one, she didn't say a word. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I know exactly. It's so subtle, about. but it was so fire. So it's so yeah. good. Yeah. All right. Uh, David, are you. Let's let's give each give a rating of the film first, and then we'll just hop directly into spoiler conversations. So okay, okay, uh, I'll go first because I think it's just fun to save yours for last. I give this film a four and a half out of five, which puts it right at the top of any of Nolan's films for me. A movie that I didn't think was perfect, but is damn near close to it, and mm-hmm. um, just uh, amazing. And a movie that a three hour movie that I wanted to go see twice in theater. So obviously, Jeez. yeah. Obviously, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. David? I gave it a... Actually, first viewing, I believe I gave it a four and a half, but I watched it again and I bumped it to a five. Um, yeah, I I even said this, like by no means is this the perfect movies. It has some flaws. But for me, I was just like, man, the flaws just weren't near big enough to outweigh just the enormous like achievement that no one was able to to accomplish just with the Trinity test and like we, we've been bringing up the sound editing, the, the scores, the performances. Um, I don't know that they, they paled in comparison to everything that was good about it. So I was like, yeah, I I've never seen this in a movie before. And to me, that's a five-star rating. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. All right. Soup right there. That will end our spoiler-free conversations on Oppenheimer. So if you have not seen the film yet, we're 35 minutes into this podcast. Holy crap. <laughs> if you we haven't seen the film this, yet, though, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Please, uh, I would recommend dipping out at this time. We're going to talk specific plot points and stuff. Um, so, you know, goodbye to those of you who haven't seen it, to those of you that have. Uh, here we go. Let's dive in. So... Obviously, there is one of the more interesting aspects of the film, I think, is the timeline jumps that we're doing, uh, mm-hmm. where we, we hop between, um, well, there's really there's really like three points in time that we are always returning to, or three different timelines running at once. And so the first one that we are introduced to is Oppenheimer sitting in the, what I'm just going to call the kangaroo court, which is him on trial with the not necessarily on trial, but doing the hearing for the security clearance. Um, 
for the Atomic Energy Commission. And so that's one, which is our avenue into the second part, which is him explaining how he gets to where he is in the Manhattan Project. And that kind of starts us with him be in London 12 years before the start of World War II, something around there. I think I so. Know exactly the time. Uh, studying to be a young physicist and then having um, just kind of entering into the realm of nuclear fission and uh, getting the knowledge that he eventually gains in order to spearhead the Manhattan Project. And then the third one, we were introduced to this Robert Downey Jr. character, uh, Admiral Strauss, who is it, it seems to be preparing for a confirmation hearing. And at a confirmation hearing where he is being appointed to the Secretary of Commerce, I believe, mm -hmm. um, in President Eisenhower's cabinet. And he's going through Senate confirmation. And so he is also telling the story about Oppenheimer because he's getting asked about what happened to Oppenheimer. Um, and five years previous, I believe. Yes, uh, I believe yeah. it's been yeah five years. And what happens to Oppenheimer is his security clearance gets revoked, and he essentially gets shut out of all U.S. government um, work having to do with the atomic bomb and nuclear energy and everything related to that. Mm -hmm. And so we learn throughout the course of the film that one, we just see how Oppenheimer spearheads the Manhattan Project, but we also learn that Strauss was actually the architect of kind of ostracizing Oppenheimer and mm -hmm. pretty much excommunicating yeah. him from the U S government. Yeah. David, was that a shock to you? Did that come as like a surprise or do you felt like you saw that coming where Robert Downey Jr. who is talking glowingly about Oppenheimer at the beginning, but starts to kind of get a little bit of little drip of poison in his voice as the movie goes on. Were you shocked when it like was fully revealed when they had that camera pan moment where you realize he's the one setting Oppenheimer up? Uh, I was, I think before they panned fully to him, I think I had cut on like, oh my gosh, I think he set this up, but, um, you know, this could be just to my lack of knowledge of history or, you know, this may not have been talked about a whole lot, you know, in depth in classes, but I, I had no idea that, um, you know, Strauss would, was the one that did that, uh, to Oppenheimer. Um, so yeah, it came as a shock. I, I was you know, I was obviously, as you do in a movie like that, you're trying to figure out, okay, like how would, you know, how would, I think what David, I'm going to try to find his character real quick. William Borden is, is the name of, of the, of the person who got this information on Oppenheimer and decided to, you know, do something, but he did it. He got it from Strauss. Right. And you're, you're thinking like, okay, how did he get this information? Who in the world would have given this to him? Um, so yeah, I, I was pretty caught off guard. Um, and, you know, props, right, to Robert Downey Jr. for being able to, to mm -hmm. deliver that performance in a way that wouldn't have you necessarily guess it was him. I think this has been said many times, um, and it's it's interesting that, like, Strauss is, almost seems like a response to Tony Stark, like, and that's why Nolan cast him, and, like, this is a completely opposite, like, this is the man trying to tear down genius. This is the man mm -hmm. trying to tear down the innovator, the controversial, like, innovator, um, as opposed to Tony Stark, who is obviously those things. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, I, I think uh, from the, this, this is just the movie cynic in me. I was like, Robert Downey Jr. is too big of an actor to just be like a narrator. 
until yeah, like I was like, this is something, something funky's happening. I didn't know that history either, which is what uh, this movie actually exposed to me is that I didn't know anything about Oppenheimer. I know mm-hmm. about the Manhattan Project in like a loose sense and like the two paragraph summary that they have in our history textbooks. It's like it was a secret like development of the, of the atomic bomb that was spread through multiple sites across the U.S. during World War II and eventually it was developed. And here's the and I remember yeah. the name Trinity Test. And that's all I know. And so I thought this movie was incredibly enlightening just for me personally um, mm-hmm. in terms of the history of Oppenheimer. I thought one of something that Nolan really dove into that I didn't expect was the um, anti like communism, which I think is kind of inseparable from Oppenheimer now that I know more about him, but like mm. how that destroyed him and how that made things complicated for him personally. Cause he wasn't even added on to the Manhattan project initially, even though he was clearly the one they needed, but he wasn't put on there because of his uh, left wing, um, really just associations. I don't even know if it's proclaimed professed ideology or mm-hmm. just the people he surrounded himself with. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. And I, I don't know. I, I felt enlightened that it's going to sound super corny and stupid, but I felt like I learned something through this movie too, which I also did when mm-hmm. I watched Barbie. So that's good too. But I really yeah. felt like I learned a lot during this movie. No, I, I completely agree. I was like, Oh yeah, that's what well, it helps too. like the, the author of, you know, American Prometheus, him saying like, this is one of the most, you know, accurate portrayals of a historical figure. Cause you know, sometimes you watch the movie and it's like, can I trust that? Was that like, yeah. are we sure that's how that happened? Yeah. But based on just critics and what people are saying. And this author is saying like, this seems pretty stinking accurate. Uh, even his grandson said the only quarrel he had with the movie was the whole poisoning of the apple. Cause the grandson yeah. claimed, claimed that it was like, from a friend from a friend from a friend like it wasn't confirmed that it happens um which i think i've heard that story before so i feel like i don't know yeah other than that like even the grandson was like yeah that this is what i remember my grandfather which is really impressive there's a couple of scenes that are obviously like added dramatic tension i don't know if i don't know about the kitty oppenheimer like testifying or not testifying or giving a statement during um his security clearance hearing i don't know how much of that is true i think also the florence Pugh scene where he reads the famous uh <laughs> quote from the bhagavad gita that is i am become death destroyer of worlds while having sex with gene tatlock is probably not how that happened um but i think that's one of the just a filmmaking quirk away from no one <laughs> to introduce this which I, I, that kind of, t- I'm not going to lie, David, that part, I was like, oh, okay. Like that, that, mo- that yeah. was a little much, da- that was a little much there, Chris. I don't know. I don't know if we needed that. Yeah. Uh, that and was... the, the only other time that I felt like I got really taken out of the movie there, which there were a couple like kind of cornier lines, but when they were like the junior Senator from Massachusetts, what's his name? Uh, Kennedy. I was like, okay. Bro, that was fire. Stop. Why are we talking about him like it's Captain Marvel returning to help the Avengers? Okay? That was like, like what that was like doing? dropping Robin in Dark Knight Rises. Noel yeah. was like, yeah, watch that this. That was so <laughs> bad. Oh, I forgot how bad that is. The Robin drop at the end of that movie is terrible. Um, anyway, I I thought. I thought that, yeah, this movie was incredibly enlightening. The first two hours of this movie absolutely rip. 
I mean, when we're like getting to the point where he's getting to the Manhattan Project and then figuring, I love puzzle movies, and this is a movie about solving yeah. problems. And they yeah. can't necessarily even try to solve the problems with you because it's nuclear physics, and mm-hmm. we don't know that. And so they yeah. have to like explain it, but not explain it. But I love gathering the gathering. I love a good gathering the team moment. You know, yeah. that's what we're doing. We're assembling a team. And then I love problem solving, even though the end result is something I don't love, which is the creation yeah. of the atomic bomb, which is awful in many mm-hmm. ways. Um, and so I, I I, just thought that the first two hours like sailed, like you were soaring right up from the moment that we first like have him narrating how he came to London and then started to learn about this new kind of physics all the way up until the Trinity test. I thought that part of the movie just flew by. Yeah. Man, that first 45 minutes, there's like three high points in this movie for me. Well, there might be more, but that first like 45 minutes when he's like, it like, it's it like the way he's switching to scenes faster and faster and the music is building faster and faster and it switching between like the splitting of the atom and the explosions really close up, like weird mm-hmm. slow-mo and um, back to kill, like, just it, it was so good to me because and then I believe right after that it switches to your Senate hearing for the first time. Mm-hmm. But I was just like that first like 45 minutes, you're just like in it, you know, and, and then you kind of builds it back up again to that Trinity test, which is just like you said, I don't know how I'm able to be as tense as I've ever been in a movie when I know what's going to happen, you know, but just like right, like what you said, the score building and. Killian's like facial reactions feels like I'm actually concerned for what's going to happen, even though I know what's going to happen. And it, it, it just, yeah, blew me away. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause it and, feels earned. The test feels earned. It's not like one of yeah. those things where they lollygagged around in the movie for a long time. And you're like, how did we get to this point? Even though you don't see each individual step that goes in, you understand how they got there. You understand the timeline of what's been going on and if they're even mm-hmm. pushing everything up and there's still a lot of uncertainties you understand the magnitude of everything that's happening. And then, yeah, he just builds that tension cutting between each of the three sites where people are at between Oppenheimer and, and the general and, you know, back to teller and all the other scientists who are waiting and keep going back and forth and back and forth and everything. And the music, Man. like the score is just so great. And then he cuts the sound, which is so smart. Perfect. So just immediately cut the sound, no score, no nothing. As soon as it goes off, you're just watching this explosion yeah. Everybody's eyes are just on the screen, looking up in awe, and then and it's just, him breathing. It's him breathing. It's him breathing. It's the "I am become death, destroyer of worlds," and yeah. then the score starts to slowly come in, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing! This is great!" And then and you forget. Bam! He just yeah. murders you with sound, just instantly. Oh it feels like it pushes you back into your chair while you're watching the movie as the characters are getting pushed back. I thought that yeah. was really effective when like Damon mm. stands up and then everybody around him like falls and he kind of like braces against it. It's yeah. just, it's so good. I like, I I and then for me that's where the like the again the last part of the movie isn't as bad and I do love a good like. It feels the end of this movie feels very trial of the Chicago 70 to me, which is mm. a Sorkin movie that I like but don't love. And that's because it just cuts in between a lot of different things. Um, but it's all a story about injustice and like trying to show you how wrong and evil something is and the two different perspectives because you actually see two stories um, the black and white version, which part of this movie is shot in black and white. That's all the everything from Strauss's perspective is black and white. 
and then everything which Nolan, I believe, has come out and said that everything in the last hour of the movie that is in color or everything that is in color is like the objective truth is what actually happened. Mm. And so uh, cutting back and forth between that, I think it's entertaining. Um, there's some great moments. The Truman conversation with Truman, which actually happened <sighs> apparently, where it's Gary Oldman is is. Harry S. Truman making an appearance, which takes me out of the movie because I'm like, what the heck are you doing here, Gary Oldman? But also it's great when he calls him. Like, he don't pulls let, you back in. Yeah. Don't don't let that cry baby in here anymore. Um, Dude. I thought it was great. And then. Yeah, when he's like, I don't care. Like people won't care who made the bomb. They'll care they who, care dropped, who it, dropped it. And yeah. I dropped it. And he pulls out the white handkerchief and like weighs it in his face. I'm like, like, oh my gosh. Off, yeah, wipe the blood off your hands then. Uh, Jeez. That part was great. Um. The second time around, I didn't really notice this as much the first time, but the Alden Ehrenreich character is just a person who says, what does that mean? What do you mean? How did that happen? Who's like clearly just there to further the plot along by asking Strauss mm -hmm. these questions so he can give exposition. It's a little annoying. Um, but obviously that leads to the great Kitty Oppenheimer just destroys Jason Clark's character. Oh my goodness! Who did a no, very good job? No, eighteen. Yeah, eighteen. <laughs> I don't think that's what you meant to say. I don't. I don't want to answer. But you know what I mean. Oh, I know what you meant, but I don't like your phrase. Mm -hmm. It's just so good. I I want to talk about the lawyer real quick, and I don't even know. I don't even know his name. So I don't know how to. Lawyer, you mean? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll I don't even know it. how to find him. But a very underrated part of this movie was his facial expressions. I noticed that the second time around, like he had such good reaction and like. Macon Blair, who played Lloyd Garrison. Macon Blair. Okay. Yeah. Man, just the way he was able to express his emotions through his face and like his reacting, like whenever she was, Emily Blunt was going off and like his just little like surprise smirk to Op Oppie. And, like, there's just so many like different things that he did. I was like, I, I I think, you know, we probably won't know his name and, you know, mm -hmm. he, he may not get talked about. Probably won't be, but I thought he did a very good job as well. But, yeah, dude, it's – we were kind of waiting for that Emily Blunt part, weren't we? We were like, mm -hmm. where's, where's, her, where's her scene? I, and, I genuinely uh, was. I was it. like, well, there's no way we're getting Emily Blunt for, like, these two scenes where she is going to complain about, uh, uh, like, what's happening around her and then, like, the fact that she doesn't want to have to deal with her kids. Mm -hmm. um, and – I was like, there's no way this can't be all we're doing for Emily Blunt here. And it it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. We had that scene coming. I I thought he was great as well. Um I didn't I recognize this actor, but didn't really know his name at all. Um yeah. so it was it another just, you know, Nolan pulling out a good performance. Uh I think another thing that we should talk about with this movie that a lot of people were a little worried about going into it is that um Oppenheimer is like not a good person. And obviously there's an inherent protagonist nature wherever you end up rooting for the main character of the film just because you spend the most time with them. Yeah. Uh, and I did find myself at certain points rooting for Oppenheimer because I felt like he was coming up against worse people and I mm -hmm. kind of feel bad for him at the end. But also like he's spineless. And I think yeah. Nolan does a good job of portraying that where he like – softballs every time he's asked for his opinion on like the use of atomic weapons while they're doing the Manhattan project. And like, 
at least have a freaking opinion guy. And he's so like, I, I like that that frustrated me. And I like that that made me angry and made me upset because it wasn't mm-hmm. Nolan like retconning or trying to rewrite stuff to make Oppenheimer more sympathetic to tell uh, a story that people would relate to more or anything like that. I, I mm-hmm. thought it was very good that one, he's obviously incredibly a complicated character and, and he plays him that way. There's a deep remorse to Killian Murphy's performance. But that, like, I, there were many times in the film where I just hated Oppenheimer because he was freaking yeah. pissing me off. Well, like, you, you, to, to point to that, you know, point back to the character David Krumholtz played, uh, kind of his best friend in that, you know, he's saying, like, I, I can't get behind this because you're going to, there's a huge injustice. Yes, there's some justice in this, but you're going to be killing a lot of innocent people. And Oppenheimer's like, I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't, which is an answer, but it's still like you didn't answer. It's, it's my, not a good answer. Right? You know what like, I mean? And so it's just like, yeah. And then it, I think what's really cool, and then credit to Killian, because as soon as that bomb goes off, you find in the last hour of this movie, his demeanor completely changes. And it goes to like questioning everything. He's not confident. The only confidence we see when that bomb goes off to the end of the movie is when he defends Kitty and says, "We know we've been through war together. She'll be fine." Mm-hmm. But I, thought to, I think it's really interesting how, like, for the rest of the movie, even you know when he shakes the hand of Benny Safdie, who would be kind of almost betray him at the very end, you know, at the White House, like he shook his hand and he's still questioning, like, "Did I, you know, destroy the world? Did I?" Did I, you know, mm-hmm. mess up? So I just think it's really interesting, like just that switch. And um, I enjoyed the, the, the third hour. I mean, it's hard to top that Trinity test in that first 45 minutes. But to me, I still really enjoyed it. I kind of liked how it felt like we got into even more dialogue of like, now we're into the hearing and what's going to happen. And I want to talk about, I don't, I don't know how you felt about the scene, but one of the, maybe the second most effective scene in the entire movie for me was his celebration speech in the bleacher room in that little mm. gym area. Mm-hmm. Um, that scene blew me away from, you know, h- him talking and they're cheering and then it mutes them cheering and he's just talking and the background shaking behind him. And then out of nowhere that, you know, they're cheering again, which first of all, I jumped. There was little, an actual jump scare for me there. Yeah. It was um, very loud. And then it goes to them just stomping and they're laughing and cheering and then, like, there's this scene of, like, the, the people's faces light up. And it's, again, it's an illustration of the bomb going off. And you start to see, like, the skin melt off one of the girl's face. And, and then he steps on a corpse and it's, like, ash. and Yeah, and as he's walking out, you look back at the same girl and now she's, like, weeping. And, like, there's people, like, throwing up and, and making out. And it's just, like, the, the state of, you know, humanity. It's, I think it was just so effective, like, just the switch um and I, it just blew me away um i was horrified I, I, one of the more effective scenes for me in a movie i've seen in a while um and that was intentional i think no one even mentioned that there are some horror aspects to this movie and i think that scene was that because i was just like terrified and like uh, i think that was at that point when you said you looked over and my my jaw was actually dropped which i don't mm-hmm. remember i don't remember mm-hmm. that but i guess mm-hmm. i was just audibly just awestruck because that scene really was effective for me and um i really like that what did you think about that i know i I was listening to some people that actually said that scene took them out of the movie so i'm just Mm -hmm. curious kind of what you thought on that i I thought it was i thought it was effective if a little obvious i mean it's the very clear way to 
which in in movies this happens all the time where there's no way for you to portray a person's inner feelings so you just give them visions right because mm-hmm. i feel like that whole thing is a vision that i don't i don't think he even actually gave the speech i think it's like a dream sequence or whatever um where he's saying like i'm i don't know how japan i don't we don't yet know the full response from what happened but i know they didn't like it or something like that like i don't think yeah. he ever said that and so uh i i i I understand where the criticism is coming from, where it's like, it's a cop out because you're showing like, Oh, it only matters. Cause in the, in the, like the woman whose skin is peeling and then he looks outside and it's like, actually one of Roderick. I don't know the actor's name, Roderick from diary of a Wimpy kid, who was one of the scientists <laughs> in the film is like throwing yeah. up and stuff. Um, and like has radiation sickness clearly. I think it's one of those where you could criticize Nolan for being like, wow, this is only horrifying because in this it's happening to white people versus the Japanese people that it actually happened to. Mm-hmm. The way that I interpret it, which I understand, that's a fair criticism. The way that I interpret it was, is only real for Oppenheimer because he now is envisioning people right in front of him. It happened mm-hmm. to. And, he and he's not seen photos or videos, of the, I think, at that point of what it would they, look like. Later they do show, they're, they sit all the scientists in a room and they're showing them like slideshows of like what happened. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think you're, I think it was effective and I think you're really right. I love the point that you made where it seems like the, the switch kind of flips for Oppenheimer whenever the Trinity test goes off and then he realizes they're going to use the bombs on Japan because the whole time, which I didn't really know this. I mean, I knew that they were obviously building the bombs, but they were doing it because they had not, they thought the Nazis were going to do it first and they had to beat the Nazis to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they were doing it. And the Nazis are once again used as uh, this kind of just overarching, hateable villain that everybody everybody's on board with going mm-hmm. against. And that's how they recruit everybody. That's how they get all these Jewish scientists. That's how they do everything is because they're it's against the Nazis. You have to beat the Nazis. And that's yeah. something that everybody signs up for. And so Japan gives people a little bit different feelings because that's not what they were building towards. And then then the Nazis at that point, Hitler is dead by the time the Trinity's test happens. The Nazis have surrendered. They're done. And so I think for me, the more effective scene than what you just listed, which is uh, still an effective scene, mm-hmm. for me is the scene in which they're choosing the targets. And oh, he's I sitting in the Secretary of scene, War's dude. office. And he's like, we're taking Kyoto off the list because of its significance to the Japanese people. And then, and then he goes on to say like, and because my wife and I honeymooned there uh, two summers ago, and like they're I heard, going we, through we, all these, we heard scenarios. audible like, gasps. Well, I was like, we heard like audible gasps in the. I mean, I think I said, said under. I think I said under my breath, like you f- piece of shit. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I th- that's what I said because it's like yeah. one of the most infuriating things lines I've ever heard in a movie. It's like, man, and that's it's that <sighs> way. But I think it's so interesting how that whole conversation is them trying to soften it. They're like, what if we warn them earlier? What if we – like it doesn't matter. It's horrifying. Mm-hmm. What you're committing – what you're going to do is horrifying. It doesn't matter. And, and he's like, what's your estimates? He's like, oh, 50,000 people. Yeah. And, and we just know way, that that was way, yeah. way off. And yeah. so they keep – they that scene is just I think so effective. And it it's, it's the scene that made me the most frustrated with Oppenheimer. Because he had the opportunity to stand up and say something, and he didn't. And he didn't even 
he did the like, well, I made him aware of both sides. And he really didn't. He does like the, there's some concerns from some people and others are pro. And so that's, I think that really illustrates like it, it, this is his fault. Like in, you sometimes we give, I think we give people a pass because we say like, he didn't choose to drop it, which he didn't, but he knew it was going to happen. And he had the opportunity to speak up and he had the opportunity to make a stance. And he, he, I think he recognized that and does so afterwards, but he doesn't do it before. And that's the fatal Mm -hmm. flaw. Well, yeah, it's, it's tough. Like, you know, if you want to take sides in a way, it's like, he has a point of like, I know, you know, I, I don't, know if we can trust us but i know we can't trust the nazis and you know someone would have made it eventually yes but you know that doesn't remove the fault from you for creating such a device you know that you created and um i think we see that in that last hour where he just looks like miserable and like in a daze almost because he's like what have i done and i I think even a crazy effective scene it's when killian and and benny safty's character are watching the two bombs getting driven away Mm -hmm. you know and they're just talking about it and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's tough. And, and, and he and, realizes like, what have I done? You know? And he uses this bull crap argument, which they, I don't know if he genuinely believes or he just made it to make himself feel better, which is, well, because I've created this most powerful, terrible weapon, there's now going to be peace because everybody's going to be afraid of it. And so I've mm-hmm. actually, what I've done inadvertently by creating the most powerful weapon to ever exist is I have created peace because there will be no more war, which is not true. Mm-hmm. And Teller tells him right there. It's not true because as until somebody builds a bigger bomb. Yeah. Which is exactly <sighs> what happened and which Benny's, is what continued to happen. I mean, and we so, kept seeing this, but Benny Safdie, another performance that was like really good. Yeah, he was, was great. Really, really also, good. Also really illustrates how crazy Teller was as well. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever seen David? Have you seen uh Dr. Strange love? No, it's on my list. Okay. Well, the Doctor Strange Love, the main character, the bomb crazy character in that, I learned is based on Teller, who was like oh. pro dropping hydrogen bombs into hurricanes and like thought they should be used all the time and was just like wanted to bomb things. Just a Jeez. big fan of bombing everything. So that guy's crazy and I think they did a good job of like Kind of being like, yeah, here's Oppenheimer. This Teller guy has some good points, but at least Oppenheimer's not like Teller, which is the stance of many. But I think the movie doesn't soften on Oppenheimer. And the end is a little obvious where it shows all the ICBMs flying up into the air and the destruction of the entire planet um, that Oppenheimer feels in many ways he's responsible for. And he should. Yeah. Another another like vision of what he imagines, you know, how the world will end. And, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. One one of the more effective quotes in the entire movie was how it ends, and he's, you know, we finally find out what Oppenheimer said to Einstein, and he's like, "When I came to you with those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world." And Einstein goes, "I remember it well. What of it?" And Oppenheimer says, "I believe we did." And it, and then of course that's when you see like the the missiles going up and stuff like that. And yeah, I was like, "Man!" And again, the score is so. Man. Just so effective in that moment as well. Um, this may not be surprising. But for me, it is like there's a lot of this, this movie is very quotable for me. Like just I've become death, destroy of worlds. Prometheus stole fire from the gods, gave it to man for this. You know, he was changed to a rock torch. Like there's just a lot of like amateurs chase the sun and get burned. Power stays in the shadows. Louis Strauss. Saint. Like to me, there's just a lot of like quotable parts in this movie that 
till somebody builds it till somebody builds a bigger bomb yeah the kyoto one even something like simple as that like there's some just really effective line delivering in these movies which i don't know that other nolan like outside of heath ledger and the dark knight are there other like lines in nolan films that you really like cling to Maybe in the prestige, just kind of those twists at the end. But I mean, yeah, I don't know if there's if there's. But I can't think of like specific lines from the prestige. And as and much I, as I love Interstellar, there's so much dialogue in that movie that I can't necessarily think of like other know, like than iconic... Matthew McConaughey saying "docking," <laughs> like <laughs> docking. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't. What else? Or know? when I don't know when Killian Murphy says "the Batman" and Batman Begins, that that's pretty. It's pretty nice. It's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, but I think you're right. I think this Another one has more memorable lines. I do think like the last half is structured like like Aaron Sorkin, just m- many of his movies um, mm. and his writing, which isn't I like. I'm a person who likes Aaron Sorkin, um, and it has the sort of like look at how this man has been denigrated and betrayed and. But I, again, I think that it's painting Oppenheimer in a somewhat sympathetic light while also reminding you consistently that he put himself in this position. He mm-hmm. is at fault. He is not blameless. Um, and I think that's very important. And that's the way that I'm reading it. I saw a couple of them, that, like, a couple of reviews for this film that have said, like, this is a movie that glorifi- glorifies Robert Oppenheimer. And I think it, in a way, it glorifies maybe his, his talent and his intellect, but I don't think it glorifies his decisions. And the yeah. Because I think we see that, you know, we see his, him being miserable and the remorse he feels. I think we see that he regrets every decision, you know, that he made. Um, mm-hmm. I some some aspect of this movie that we have not mentioned yet, and as people post, you know, two bombs on Japan, it's really easy to just yeah, of course this isn't going to happen. I don't think we realize how terrifying, like this was going to be when they brought up like you know when we detonate this is there a chance the detonation will ever stop as far as kind of splitting that atom and you know mm-hmm. will we'll, we'll we destroy the world when like I, I was really thinking about that and like that's a terrifying thing and I, I think they delivered that well pre-test because I think that's also what tariff even though I knew it was going to happen in that 45 second countdown you see that fear in their faces of like when we you know detonate this bomb will will it ever stop and I think that's like a legitimate like fear that they had. And, you know, they honestly didn't know pre making the atomic bomb that we are obviously were like, Oh, duh. That's why would that happen? And I think that was just another aspect of like, this is horrifying. And, you know, we're dipping our hands into some dangerous stuff. So I thought that was really effective too. And their, you know, way of delivering that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that this movie just reinforces more than anything. Like, I don't. I mean, this is clearly a movie that is anti-nuclear uh, armament. Like it, it, it just is. Um, and I think that's what Nolan's trying to say with this. And I, I think it. There's been some criticism um, from him not actually showing what happens, uh, what happened in Japan as a result of of the bombs. And I understand that as well. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a movie about Oppenheimer. And I think that the perspective that he took, which I agree with in in terms of the story that he was trying to tell, um, is that Oppenheimer wasn't told when they were dropped. Like, he wasn't told when it happened. He found out 
through a phone call and then Truman was on the radio and like this, that mm -hmm. was exactly what happened. And so for him, it was something that just like passed by instantly and that he never really got time to contemplate until after the fact. And I think that's why they chose to do it like this. Um, there's other movies that, that I think I could recommend. Um, Grave of the Fireflies is one of them. If, mm -hmm. um, if you're looking for movies on, on in any way deal with the impact on Japan, which is horrifying. And it's definitely something we make light of way too frequently. Um, and I think that it's, a, I probably made jokes as a uneducated idiot, um, when I was in middle school and high school that I regret making because there's nothing that can really capture even on film, the just horrors of an atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. and now we no matter, have, no matter who it's dropped on, like you're right. And now we have thousands. And I think that the Krummelts line is so effective when he says, like, it falls on the just and the unjust alike. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, this is a movie that um, I think in many ways confronts you with, with what we've done. <laughs> and which is actually what Barbie does as well, which is why I said these movies were so similar, um, which is weird. Yeah. But yeah, man, there's just so much we could talk about this forever. Um, I, these are kind of just general questions now because I, th I think they're still fun to talk about and needed. Who is the star of this film? Not named Killian. Like who, who is, uh, cause Killian kind of the given like dude, he, ca he carried that not named Killian though. Who is like, <laughs> The, the all-star in this movie for you? I mean, I think the... I My personal answer is Matt Damon, although I think mm. that Downey is the obvious choice. But mm. I think Damon um, is such an important propulsive force in this film um, and is doing the, like, I'm... Which I enjoy that Matt Damon has reached this phase of his career where he's like, I'm the older guy who's like, why are you guys not listening to me? Do what I want you to do. Like mm -hmm. I'm the planner now. I am the one in charge where a lot of the points, like I think this was pointed out smartly and other things that I've seen is it's a, it's a stark contrast from where Damon starts and, and like, especially movie like oceans 11, where he's like the newcomer young guy who doesn't know anything and has to learn everything mm -hmm. on the fly. And the fact that he's now like the seasoned veteran and, um, I, I just thought he was great. I think that he has um, chemistry with Killian is super important to the success of yeah. a lot of the stuff that happens during the Manhattan Project. Um, and it's kind of our avenue in because we don't understand the science as well. Mm. So he's like, he's he's the reminder of the deadline. He's like the clock for everybody. and But he's also like the friend and protector in the audience's like entry point. So for me, it's yeah. Matt Damon and his performance. What about you? Yeah. I mean, you have, I think Jason Clark, Josh Hartnett are two that I've really enjoyed, but I honestly, I, because you said Matt, I, I think RDJ we've never, like, I, I don't, I know he's been a villain in, in, in a movie before. I've not seen him though. Be, be a villain and dude can play a menacing character. Like I, I was very, very impressed um, and you know, it's, it's a nice reminder that 
he can still act like he's not being car- carried by, you know, Marvel or whatever you want to want to say with that. Like Robert Downey Jr. can still act and he is a one of the better actors, you know, that we've seen in our lifetime. And he proved that here because I thought he was good. I, I think do something that's important with Matt, too. I, I don't know if this movie works nearly as well if Matt Damon's not in that character. I think he elevated this just, film so much. He's perfect for the role. Yeah, I mean. I, I saw somebody say, like, I think this movie would have been better if Ben Affleck was the Matt Damon character, and I just completely disagree. I think Ben Affleck is a good actor but has different strengths, and I think every the strength that Matt Damon had, um, my favorite, what I was trying to think of this, what what do you think is your favorite Matt Damon performance? Ooh, man. I think the first one that comes to mind, Goodwill Hunting, but yeah. let me look through his filmography and he was really good in air this year as well honestly very very good job and then of course you have the jason Bourne series i don't know i i think for me personally it's actually him and the martian which might just be like Mm. a like a heinous take i don't i don't know the martians i like the movie i think it's a good movie yeah i love the martian um and so i i think it might be that for me and so because of that, um, I think this felt like The Martian. It felt like the Mark Watney character a little bit to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know, I just really I just really enjoyed him in this film. And yeah, I think he elevates it to such a high degree. Well, you can't, I mean, he was pretty good in Ragnarok too, you know, in that, sure. in that, that play as sure. actor, as Loki, so. And I'm also famously like not a hater of, but not really a Jason Bourne guy either Mm. like i think they're fine but i don't really care for them what's funny about that though is like mission impossible 007 or jason bourne i feel like we'll take jason bourne last out of that but jason bourne would clean those other two guys easily oh yeah in a fight yeah absolutely (laughs) jason jason bourne would kill the other two and then drop off the face of the planet and nobody would ever find him again ever But we'd probably both take Mission Impossible, wouldn't we? You, I don't know, though. Skyfall, though. No. No. Yeah, I'm taking Mission Impossible. Skyfall, yes, but I counter Skyfall with Fallout. And then the James Bond movies, Casino Royale is good, so that would be Mission Impossible 1. But then you start to get, like, Quantum of Solace. Is that going up against Rogue Nation? Like, no. Spectre? No. We'll put that up against MI2. Okay, well, it's no time to die. Inspector are not as good as Rogue Nation and Dead Reckoning Part One and Ghost Protocol. So, well, there you have it. Actually, you convinced me. Mission Impossible all the way. I'm only talking about the Daniel Craig Bonds because I don't give a darn about the other ones. Yeah, Sorry. Those I are just, don't. I yeah. don't care. So, yeah, Nathan, where does this rank, Christopher Nolan? He's had 11 films uh, released. Now with Oppenheimer out, where does this rank right now for you um, well, in his filmography? David, it's interesting that you've asked me that because I believe that I have actually made a list. And if I mm. haven't, this is going to be quite embarrassing. But I'm pretty sure. I think, sh- I thought I I think had you have it. a Chris Nolan list, but ha- have you added Op to it? I don't know. I'm looking. I have not. I will be doing that now. This is going to be happening. Guys, this is exciting. This is live. Ooh, is come live. on, bro. This is live TV. Live TV. If it bleeds, right it leads. And I don't know what that is... had to do with 
You know, anything, but it really had anything to do with it. Hmm. Oppenheimer. It's tough. Is currently in last place because I haven't adjusted it yet on the on the list there. So let's... I think I think Insomnia really just had better. You know. You know, I still haven't seen Insomnia. That's it's fine. It's my one Nolan. It's got Al Pacino in it, so I feel like I need to. Oh Oppenheimer yeah. Oh. For me, is third. Okay. So my top three Behind are Dark Dunk- Knight Rises and Interstellar. Yeah. Yep. Hundred <laughs> percent. No. Behind uh, Dunkirk the and the Dark Knight, and then in that order, third, which I, yeah, I don't. I'd be happy with any one of those three at one. Um. So yeah. Yeah. So David, where where's it at? Where's that for you? Well, I think that's where I'm running into. It's like I'll stop. I'll, Right now, it's number two. Right so now, I have Interstellar, Oppenheimer, Dark Knight. Yeah, right now I'm rewatching Interstellar Friday, and my final kind of okay. decision. Well, I'm curious though, really, to see what I think of Interstellar after watching Oppenheimer. I'm really am, um, um, but yeah, for me, it's the, the same way. Inception's four, and Memento had a late push. I rewatched the Nolan movies, and Memento jumped up because, dude, I'm it's telling you. Fire. Memento rips. Memento is good. Yeah. What's yep. their last place? It better it, be Insomnia. Oh, wow. Okay, maybe I haven't seen Insomnia, so I can't comment on that. I mean, it's not bad, but it's like, if you look at any of these, you know, t- 10 other movies, it's like, it's just, someone, someone's got to be last. That was my review. Like, sorry, Insomnia, but um, one of these has to be last, and, and you have been selected. Yeah, I think I think it's fine. I think most people don't even know about that one anyway. That's like also definitely the lesser known Nolan film. Don't be mad at me, but bold of you to assume I have Dark Knight Rises in tenth. Yeah, you like Dark Knight Rises for no reason at all. It's one it, of the worst things about you. It's in ninth place, but Batman Begins is in ten. Liking liking Dark Knight Rises less than Batman Begins is wild. That's like my guilty pleasure movie or whatever you want to call it. Like, I just was like, I don't even care. This movie is ridiculous, but there's just so many good aspects it of it. It just doesn't make any sense. That just, why are the, how, why are the cops down there? But Tom Hardy. But No, but why are the cops down there? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's cause it, Isn't cause Bane trying to teach him a lesson? But what is the lesson? Why doesn't he kill them all? And then why do they instantly rush and just do a ha- big hand-to-hand fight? Because it makes for good cinema. Yeah, stop. It's even though like the first like twenty yards of that the cops chasing just got mowed down by those tanks. I was like, yeah, oh guys, so you got at tanks with freaking. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's dumb. It just feels yeah. dumb. But Nathan, I have one more question regarding Chris, and then uh, you know we can. If there's more to talk about, there's more to talk about. I, I think it's worth asking the question. Where does Christopher Nolan sit all time? All time director. Jeez. Mm. After a movie like this, like this Oppenheimer and what he's done, like, is he a top five director all time? Is he a top 10 director all time? Like, I don't think it's ridiculous to ask this question after what we've, you know, no. what we're seeing out of him. No, I don't think it's ridiculous either. I just know that the director lists are so hard for me. Yeah. Um, because it's just. First of all, I don't feel like I'm well versed enough in other like 
I've only seen two Akira Kurosawa films, and he's often considered in the Mount Rushmore, right? And I, I don't know. He's definitely in the conversation for top 10. I mean, and I think, I think directors, it's so much, which this is with movies generally, but directors, it's so much personal taste. Because if you like a director's style, chances are you like, or if you love a director's style, you love all their movies. And if you mm-hmm. don't, you might like some. Some might bridge the gap for you, but others won't. So I, here, here's what I'll say. I think he's like top 10. If, he, if you consider him top 10, I think he's tier two. He's not Spielberg level. Mm. But he's like below it, but he's like right there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like yeah. I think that there's some untouchables. I think Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, maybe. Orson Welles or Yeah. Bro ah PTA. Uh me I for me. I mean uh, you know, see your P your PTA is like my known, I feel like. We both have like Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's very true. Like no matter what, you're like that was a good movie for PTA. And then, <laughs> and then they both have one movie, or two movies where it crosses the divide. And for for me, there's like three Nolan movies where I'm like, yeah, these are masterpiece masterpieces. Four mm-hmm. actually: Dunkirk, Memento, Dark Knight, and Oppenheimer are are all I would rubber stamp masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And I think that PTA has that like. There will be blood is unquestionable, and you also really love licorice pizza. Insane, yeah. I would, uh, if you're not, well, you haven't seen Boogie Nights. Uh, if you're not putting Phantom Thread in there, I don't know what's going on with your life. So, I don't know. You know, it's it is tough. That, that's a very difficult I, an- question I think, to answer. Yeah, I think he's right there. I think I would put Nolan. I think like if you had a conversation about Nolan and Tarantino. And um, PTA and Wes Anderson, even like he's there, he's right there. And commercially, he's done better than all those other filmmakers. So yeah, I think he yeah. he also gets help. To, he's not Spielberg. Spielberg has the championship belt and will always have it for like box office director. I think just because of having Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, John. Mm-hmm. Like that's just unbelievable to have yeah. all of those and ET and so I think he'll always have that, but I think Nolan's like right there. I think Nolan and James Cameron are the closest that'll ever come to Spielberg. James Cameron, mm-hmm. you could arguably say, is actually better in terms of box office, but I don't think he has. From well, Terminator Two might be a five star film, but I think Spielberg has like three five star films. So yeah, yeah. I think what blows me away is Nolan's never won an Oscar, like himself. His movies have won, like with this is gonna you get know. It. This is gonna. Uh, it this has be, to. This will be his best directing. Do you think this gets nominated for every Oscar that it's able to be? Obviously, because you, you, it can't be nominated for every Oscar because the screenplay. There's multiple different ones, but uh, costume design, maybe well, not. Yeah. Like I don't know. Like it's just people dressed up. It might because it's period piece. Nobody loves period pieces. But other than that, yeah, like sound, sound editing, uh, visual effects, cinematography. I, I am supporting actress might be tough. No best actress. There's not going to be a best actress. Can Emily uh, run I for supporting? Emily would run at supporting. She doesn't have enough scenes to be in the best actress category. I don't think. And she might. Yeah. 
she may not know. win that, but you never know, dude. I don't know. Yeah. Well, she'll get like everything everywhere. You started winning them, and then you just couldn't stop, and then that's you fair. know. So that's fair. I well, I think that Barbie is going to contend in some of them. Barbie's going to win set design. I don't see it, and costume design, which might be movies that Nolan that Oppenheimer is going to be up for, but I don't think it'll win. Um, I think it might get best screenplay adapted. Um, I don't know if Barbie would be considered adapted. It's like because it's based on mm. a doll, but it's a but it's not based on the like a book or anything. I don't think it would be adapted. Huh. If maybe they'll just run opposite of. Oppenheimer. I'm going to tell you this right now: <laughs> if credit doesn't win best original screenplay, then I don't really know what we're doing in America. So, what if? David Fincher's The Killer does. They notice being a predicament. No, I won't. I <laughs> okay. Um, love Greta Gerwig more than I love David Fincher, and that's, that's not. Fair. It's not to say I don't love David Fincher. David Fincher has two five star films for me, but he's not Greta Gerwig. Yeah. So, David wow. Fincher, another director I would consider in that echelon with Nolan. Yeah. A little bit below, probably, but. Man, there's there's still a lot of movies left, dude. Killers of the Flower Moon. We got Dune Part Two. We have The Killer, um, and Ferrari, Michael Mann's movie, supposedly Napoleon. Napoleon. Um, but it, we'll see, you know, because we've heard rumors about these movies getting pushed. So I don't know if they will. Of, or not. Yeah. Yeah. Grand Grand Turismo. Man, there's just so much. You know, there's so okay, much. Okay, the pod. We're done. <laughs> Actually, I saw a review and it was essentially it was a pretty good film, and David Harbour delivers one of his best performances. But that's what I've expected from that movie was pretty good and really like nothing more, you know. He, they tell you the whole movie in the trailer. I'm sorry, I'm they do. I'm thinking about Gran Turismo. They tell you the entire. You know <laughs> that the kid gets really good at playing the video games. His dad's like, "You can't do that," and then he gets invited to the camp to be an actual Formula One racer. And then he like makes it through the camp and then races and then struggles. And then it's like, I've raced this track a thousand times and presumably wins a formula one race at the end. Woo. Yeah. That's why I've stopped watching trailers. Cause they just give you the entire movie to try to hook you. Well, it's I like, think that it's movie's not interesting. Too. Yeah. That's the part of the problem. I don't know. Yeah. The, you want to look at a good trailer. First of all, the Dune two trailer and the oh my goodness. killers, of the flower moon trailer are both, examples of why you should let directors make their own trailers mm. so also i'm not worried about getting the movie spoiled with killers of the flower moon because that is a three and a half hour movie so yeah it's four it's almost four wow pee break I, I do think yeah i do think the uh box office i think he'll be hurt just because of that the length there yeah yeah also it's almost four those, hours one of those where i think they're partnering with like apple to release it, um, so it's yes. probably only going to be in theaters for like two weeks before it goes on to Apple TV Plus, which a lot of people will probably wait because it's four hours. I guess Martin probably doesn't care at this point of his career. He's I, like, I'm he's just gonna a, start. He's, yeah, well, the Irishman. He's addicted to making movies that are over three hours long. Yeah. So yeah. Nathan, final question: Does this crack your top fifty films of all time, Oppenheimer? <sighs> 
Because I think there's multiple ways to look at this, right? You could be your top, your favorite movies. I know you like to look at movies. You like to look at movies in a way of, you know, was it effective? Did like they, Mm -hmm. you know, the the point of the movie that they're trying to get across to me, did I receive that well? You know, there's many ways of of it. And so I'm just curious, like, does that, does that hop into your top 50 at, at at all? I mean, look, right now, no. But it's been a while since I reevaluated like 30 through 50. So yeah. it might be a surprise. Um, no, I don't. Because it comes down to like personal, like, the, I think that my top 25 are like all of its personal taste, right? And it's, I'd be an idiot if I was like, this is actually just objective. But mm-hmm. I think that like once you get to 50, I'm like, I just love this. Yeah. Like, I think Oppenheimer's technically better than a a lot of the movies that I have in the back half of my top 50. But, like, my number 50 movie right now is Mean Girls. Is Oppenheimer a better film than Mean Girls? Better? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do I love it more? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, Skyfall is not the top 50 movie of all time. But that's one of mine. I'm like, it's like 48, I think. I'm like, but that's, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. Like, I I've love definitely it, seen you know? better movies, like technically and performance wise. But do I love them more? Do they mean more to me? Would I rewatch them more? No. So. I got you. So yeah, that's the determining factor right now. Dog, your top 50 is wild. Mean Girls, this Rogue One scream and then it's just yeah there's you have a lot a wide variety yeah i mean we got we got a silent Silent film in the top 10 we got uh a ballet movie two ballet movies in the top 50 (laughs) two great movie about a a color wild movie about a color movie about an apartment a musical there's a musical in my top 50 david did you ever think that would be true it's impressive. It should be La La Land, though. It's not because La La Land's not as good. Thank you should you, revisit that. You should revisit that one. Oh, it's been I a while. On it. I plan on revisiting La La Land now. Especially that my... now that you appreciate Damien Chazelle a little more, you know. Yeah, you didn't even like Babylon, though. You don't. Who who doesn't appreciate Damien Chazelle now? I liked Babylon, but I really disliked some <laughs> integral parts to it, which brought down the opinion of the movie of me. That's very fair. It's very fair. It's not for everyone. That's a, that's a, yeah. I don't know. I hated it when I first saw it, and then I thought about it, and I was like, actually, that was great. So, but Margot, that's what you thought. <laughs> I mean, she is one of our greatest actresses. All right, we got it's our highest. This. Yeah, we do. We we just, yeah yeah. It's eleven. Yeah. It's eleven sixteen p.m. We got responsibilities. Wild. But movies. But movies, film, what a time. So, yeah, it's it's been the Oppenheimer pod. Shout out to Robert Pattinson. Um, after Tenet, he gifted American Prometheus to Christopher Nolan, which sparked the idea to make Oppenheimer. So and, quite literally, Robert Pattinson is the reason that we have Oppenheimer. And didn't even get period. like a cameo role. No. Isn't that a little weird? Yeah, he's quite literally the only reason. There's no way Christopher Nolan would have. I mean, maybe I guess eventually, but yeah, I mean, it, it's what like not even one of the random scientists on the Manhattan Project couldn't have given. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's crazy. 
But could be he's in a maybe he's filming Batman 2 or something. But this has been What Do You Want to Watch? A full Oppenheimer talk. Barbenheimer Part 2. Um, we've never felt better about movies. And uh, we will just continue to ride the success of these movies and probably rewatch them multiple times. Uh, and you should too. But uh, this has been David Dirks, Nathan English on What Do You Want to Watch? Uh, thank you all for listening. Bye.